So today is the New York City Marathon, or maybe was, I should see what it is at this time, but is. And the reason that's important to me is because, well, it was actually something that was, when I lived in New York, it was like it was a big part of everyone's life because right after church we'd go over and we would, we would watch all the runners come in. Um, this race will attract thousands from, from around the world. It's really a, a global event, this, this marathon. And in order to qualify for the race, though, you have to achieve a fast enough pace in a previous marathon to prove that you can actually do it. And the pace, so if you're between 18 and 34, is 2 hours and 53 minutes. That's to qualify. That means if you can do a marathon in 2 hours and 54 minutes, you can't run in the race. So if you want to qualify, it probably means that you need to take one step more to try to increase your speed. And so you might decide, well, what can I do to do that? You might decide, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to increase my stride turnover, and that's the rate of your steps while you're running. Or you might decide, you know what, I'm going to lose some weight this year, and, and hopefully that will give me that extra speed that I need so I can qualify for the marathon this year. Well, similarly, in the life of a disciple of Jesus, it's important that each year we take some time to reflect on what's the next step that I want to take in order to be more faithful in my discipleship, more faithful as I'm a follower of Jesus. And so today we're beginning a new series called One Step More. Um, this is a series that I hope will encourage you to consider and to reflect on um, what the Lord might be calling me to do in order to increase my commitment to the Lord. And the thing of it is, it's going to be different for each one of us, you know, because we're all at different places in our walk. But over these next four weeks, I just encourage you to pray, to reflect, and see what the Lord might be calling you to do in terms of increasing your, your commitment to the Lord. Now, if you have your Bibles today, we're going to be looking at two different passages, uh, both from the readings this morning. We're going to look first at Acts chapter 20, and then we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6. So those are the two passages we're going to look at. But beginning with Acts 20. Now, Paul spent more time in Ephesus than any of the other places that are recorded in the book of Acts. He spent three years there. And at the conclusion of his time, he gathered all of the elders together from, the, uh, from there, and because he wanted to speak to them. And, and by the way, the world, word elders in, uh, in Acts chapter 20 is, is presbyter, which is what I am, a presbyter. And, and so that's what, that's what elders were. So this name was used even back then. And so these are the people that, that oversee, that look after the, the local church in Ephesus. And so he's calling them together. He now knows that he's completed his work there. And... He knows that he'll never see them again, and so he wants to speak to those that are going to be responsible, looking after the church, and he wants to leave a few words of advice for them. And so he could say a lot of things, potentially, to them, right? There's all kinds of things that, that he could focus on. But instead, he limits his message to two key points, two key points to help them shepherd the flock going forward. And the first thing he does is that he entrusts the gospel to them. And the gospel, in verse 32, he calls the word of grace. Paul reminded the elders that the gospel is the word which gives people hope. It's the word that 
you know, where people who were not a people, people that had no hope, were given hope and now can stand in the presence of the Lord worthy because of what our Savior Jesus Christ has done. It's the word that gave them an inheritance, an inheritance that will, will last forever, an eternal inheritance. And as Paul forewarns that there will be wolves that will come, that will seek to compromise that word, he's encouraging them to hold on to it. Hold on to this truth that you received. And the second point Paul made to the elders concerned how they were to live out the gospel in the world. How were they to do that? And, and at this point, you know, he could have, there's a lot of things that he could potentially choose. I mean, what, what do you want to say to these guys that, that really emphasizes what living out the gospel looks like? And, and he chooses these words. He actually chooses words that were words of Jesus. But what's interesting about these words of Jesus is that you don't find them in the gospels. Paul is the one that quotes these words in Acts Chapter 20, verse 35. And these are the words. He says, remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. For Paul, these words embody the gospel perhaps more than any. These are the words that are the gospel. And in these words are overturned the ways of the evil of the world and the way that the system works. So part of the way to understand this is the way understanding what the Greco-Roman world looked like at this time. So in, in that time, there was a really a system of reciprocity. So if I do something nice for you, you are now beholden to me to do something nice for me. And if you don't do it, I could take revenge on you because that's the way the system works. So it was a system where everyone is beholden to one another. Now the practice of radical giving that Paul is suggesting breaks that cycle by insisting on service and help to those who give nothing in return. That's what he's proposing. Freely they have received the good news of the gospel and now they are to freely give to others in return. And this is what Jesus did for us, right? This is what he did. He freely gave to us. And so in return, the disciples of Jesus are to be a people that freely give as well. Now, first, it might seem kind of strange to us. You know, think about this. Um, think about the Ten Commandments. Um, Paul could have decided to, to park on any one of those commandments and say, you know what, be sure to do this. Be sure to do this. But instead, he focuses and gives special attention to the commandment not to covet. Why did he pick adultery or stealing or murder? Probably because no one thinks he's guilty of greed. You know if you've committed adultery. You know if you've stolen. You know if you killed. But do you know if you're greedy? Greed is an intense, selfish desire for whatever we call our treasure, especially power, wealth, or material things. And the New Testament clearly teaches that greed constitutes a danger to our spiritual health. And I just want to let you look at three passages that, that just show to what extent greed is talked about here. So the first is from Matthew 23, 25. 
And Jesus is addressing the spiritual condition of the Pharisees. And this is what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And remember, these are the religious leaders at that time. Hypocrites, he calls them. For you clean the outside of the cap and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Paul considers greed as dangerous as any moral failure. In 1 Timothy 6.10, he writes, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some of you have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Indeed, greed can exclude us from the kingdom of God. And so Paul writes to the, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, our gospel reading today from Matthew 6, and we'll turn to that now, it's from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's an excerpt from there. And here Jesus discloses the reasons why greed for earthly riches is so perilous for our spiritual condition. He begins the section with a warning. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus is urging his followers to reorient their lives, to reorient their lives away from the accumulation of, of material things. You see, the tre our world here outside of these walls, the focus is on accumulating more and more material things. Life is about, as you, as you make more money, guess what? You spend more, right? You, you get bigger houses, you get nicer cars, you get, you, you, you get all these, you go on nicer vacations, all of these things. And that's the way that the world works. And Jesus is saying, stop. Your lives as my disciples need to be oriented in a different way. Your life is not about the accumulation of stuff. You are to have a different focus as my disciples. Treasure are things that we hold on to because they provide us with some kind of value. Oftentimes they can be part of our identity or, or even our image in some way. Treasures can give us status or they can provide us with security. Jesus points out that earthly treasures are not innocuous but they pose a danger for us that can stun our spiritual growth. And there's two things in particular this passage points to uh, as dangers for earthly things. Here's the first one. Earthly treasures distort our vision and perspective. In other words, we can't see properly if our lives are oriented toward treasures. In verse 621, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our treasure is a reflection of what's going on in here. Jesus shows us how by making comparison between the heart and the eye. The eye is a barometer, he's saying, to, to the health 
of the body, of the physical body, in the same way that our hearts as a barometer for, for what's going on inside of us spiritually. Now, we know how our eyesight affects our bodies. If our eye is healthy, then we're able to move freely. We, we won't be running into things, right? We'll be able to just engage in life. And interesting enough, uh, in verse 22, when he talks about the healthy eye, that word healthy actually means single-minded. It means undistracted. In other words, if the eye is singularly focused on the treasure of the kingdom and not the treasures of this world, the whole body will be filled with, with light because everything uh, of, of true worth and relationship are given true perspective. Now, by contrast, people who treasure what is on the earth will have bad eyes because they see everything through a distorted perspective. What happens is that the relative importance of all things get confused. And we see this clearly like for somebody who's abusing, uh, is, is, is addicted to, to different substances, drugs or whatever it might be. Their whole life becomes an obsession with those drugs, right? Everything. And so what that does is it blinds them. It, it prevents them from being able to see properly because everything is in, in that perspective. Jesus is pointing out as long as earthly treasures have such a hold on us that we lose sight of what is important. We're not able to see the riches of the kingdom that are available to us. And that's why he writes, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be filled with darkness. You don't know where you're going, and that's what it means to be a lost soul. The second problem with earthly treasures is this, that they lead to a life of worry and anxiety. You know, when we have earthly treasures, we're always worried about them. We're always thinking about them. Uh, will we have enough? How do we protect them from, from, from being depleted? What if I lose them? What's going to happen? Now, the interesting thing is in the English language, the word worry actually comes from a German word that means choke. <laughs> now, how did that come about? How does worry and choke, what's, how, do they, how do they come together? Do you remember Jesus' parable of the sower? You know, where he sows seeds, okay? So... Some of those seeds uh, get thrown into place amongst different weeds and, 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 uh, and different thorns and things like that. And this little plant begins to grow up. And what then happens to that plant? It gets choked up. You know, it, it can't go. It gets choked up, right? Yeah. And Jesus says that oh, those things are the worries of the world. Those things are the worries of the world. And that's where word for worry comes from. It means we get choked literally by the worries of this world so that they have a power over us. And if you're choked up, it means that spiritual life gets, gets hindered and stops in our life. So literally, the power of the kingdom that we want to rely on gets choked and can't fill our lives because we're concerned with the treasures of this world. It's the same with so many uh, it's the same with so many churches today and why the church has lost power. Because how can the church have power if it's obsessed with the treasures of this world? 
Worry says something about our spiritual condition. It is the antithesis of, of just practically trusting the Lord. For Jesus, the life of worry is epitomized in the life of the Gentiles at this time. He said, these are the people who are ignorant of God. And so they'll come before God, they'll be, they'll be praying, but they don't know who God is. And so their words are just babble. It's mumble jumble that they keep saying. And so even though they're praying, they're filled with anxiety, anger, and depression. And isn't that true of Gentiles? And that, when I say Gentiles, I mean people who don't know Jesus in the world today. You know, you look at, you know, different surveys and they say like 90% of Americans pray every day. 90% of Americans pray every day. But they're just like the Gentiles because they don't know the true God. Their words are babble. Their words have no meaning because they don't know the true God. And that's why even though they're praying, they're filled with worry. They're filled with depression because they don't know God. But the disciples of Jesus are not to live as they do. God knows our needs. And so there is no purpose to worry. Why? You know, as, as disciples of Jesus, heaven is open to us. You know, you know that you're called the children of, uh, children of God? You are a child of God. You belong to him. And does, does a father deprive his children of their needs? No, he loves them. And, and realizing that we have the resources of heaven means that we can come before the Lord any time with whatever it is that we need. And so Jesus is just saying, this is the life of a disciple. Not that we won't have needs, but we have a place to go so that our needs can be fulfilled. So how do, we, how do we eliminate greed and become and obtain this heavenly treasure that, that Jesus is, is talking about? Well, Jesus says in chapter 633, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. God's kingdom means God's people living under his rule. Seeking the kingdom is best understood as resolving to live under God's rule, God's direction, God's control in our lives. In Acts 20, Paul emphasizes the opposite of greed, giving, is a value in the kingdom of heaven. And that's because giving is the most explicit external expression of what the gospel is all about. God didn't spare anything but gave us his very best. And we are to do the same things. As disciples, we most reflect the character of God when we engage in the things that God did. And one of the most basic things is, is giving. So how do we become more giving people? People that, that give. You know, the world tries to coerce us to give through, through marketing gimmicks designed to appeal to our emotions and fears. So as we enter the holiday season, we're soon going to be bombarded by all kinds of, well, of charities and everything else saying, you know what, it, you must give or, or these people are going to hurt. They're going to be hurt if you don't give. 
Today, checkout charity is practically in every store where we shop. And that's where the cashier asks, will you donate a dollar to, to a charity while you're standing in the line at the cash register. And no matter how worthy the, the checkout charity may be, it's been devised by clever marketing people who know that under pressure you're going to give. You realize that. And so if there's a bunch of people in line behind you and the cashier asks you to make a donation, you feel so trapped and judged that you're forced to give. And that's what it's designed to do. Sometimes the church is guilty of that too. Preachers regularly get up and say, you must give. And they insinuate all kinds of consequences or they talk about certain benefits, whatever it might be. Now, while these tactics might... Uh, stimulate short-term giving, none of those are going to transform a human being. You can be greedy and still be coerced into giving. The only thing that will transform us is God himself. God must change our hearts through the mediation of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways he does that is through his overwhelming generosity to us. What did Jesus lack that he found it necessary to come down to our world? Was it glory? No. He had all the glory in, in heaven. He had glory. Well, was it intimacy with the Father? Was that why he did it? No, he already had a very intimate relationship that he enjoyed from eternity with the Father. It wasn't that. What did he lack? He didn't have us. In fact, Jesus was willing to give up his glory and his eternal communion with the Father in order that he might rescue us. We are his treasure that he gave up everything in order that we might be saved. When we know that we are so loved, it touches the deepest recesses of our hearts. We want to give because so much has been given for each one of us. And so our giving comes out of being loved and treasured by God, a love that we experience through the Holy Spirit. As we enter this new season as a, as a church body, take one step in your discipleship. Eliminate greed. Hold your treasures loosely so that you can be ready to give. The needs of the world are there, and we're to be the mediators of the kingdom of God to the world. You see, each one of those times of need are actually opportunities for us because we're the generous ones. We're the givers in the world. Giving is the fruit of the changed heart of a disciple.